0: Welcome to Crofting Matters, my name is Siobhan MacDonald and this is the Farm Advisory Service Series where we discuss topics that matter in crofting. A listener from Sky has been in touch to say, as crofters most of us are trading whether selling livestock or crops or bringing in subsidy and that's on top of the day job. Could you cover tax and fat as I'm not sure if I'm doing the right thing. So in this episode I thought it would be really useful to talk to an expert about tax and VAT. Our expert is Margie Campbell, who hails from a croft with some lovely North Country cheviots on the Black Isle. Margie is an accountant with Safri Champness, a rower and a cross-stitcher. Hi Margie, how are you doing? I'm well, thank you Siobhan. How are you? All good. So, I have some questions for you.
1: Splendid.
0: Fire ahead. First of all, if you're a crofter, do you need to do tax returns? If you are earning more than a thousand
1: pound of trading profit, then yes you do, unless it's your only source of income. So if you have another job, essentially everybody can make roughly twelve and a half thousand pounds. it's 12570. And so if you're earning less than that, you've probably very little to report. Strictly speaking, if you're trading and you're earning over £1,000 of profit, you should be notifying HMRC. And most crofters have a day job that's using up the £12,000. So yes, you probably should do a tax return.
0: Ah, okay. That's interesting. If you're doing a tax return, can you do it yourself? Do you need an accountant? Absolutely. It's self-assessment
1: is the title of the tax turn and it is designed such that you should be able to do it yourself. In reality tax is quite complicated so a lot of people don't like to but there is nothing stopping you doing it and um, you can go at it and then if you need help you can get help at a later date or you can look for help from day one.
0: On my accounts that I get back from the accountant, at the very start of it, it says they're unaudited. So what does unaudited and audited mean?
1: This is probably one of the most commonly asked questions. Audited accounts refer to a limited company set of accounts. And an audit is actually when the company themselves or somebody for them prepares the accounts and auditors come in and check it. It's almost like a department inspection, I guess. It says, you know, these are my accounts. Like, Okay, well, we're going to check them. And an audit signs off that they are a true and fair view. So often people talk about audited accounts, but that's not really what they mean. What they mean is prepared by somebody who knows what they're doing, which is a, a separate thing. So if you are a sole trade, if you're a partnership, you won't have audited accounts. That doesn't mean they're not prepared by an accountant, but that's why it's always, these are unaudited accounts because an audit is a, a big and complex process where you have two or three people on site for potentially a week and check through all the transactions. So it's it's quite a different process, but it creates a lot of confusion. Okay.
0: And there you mentioned partnerships, sole trader, limited company. What are the differences? What's each?
1: Well, when you buy your yows and you, Crack on. You are a sole trader because you're trading on your own. If you buy your yows with your wife, you're probably working in partnership. You can be in partnership with somebody just by doing things together. You don't need to have formally created a partnership. In a lot of cases, you you would end up in a partnership anyway. If you are intending to work in partnership, very often it's husband and wife or father and son or father and daughter or mother and daughter, however you do it, we would always suggest you should have a partnership agreement. And I say this to people all the time. The reason for that is if you don't, then everything you do, if anything goes wrong, is governed by the Partnership Act, which was written in 1890, which doesn't follow what we do today. So it has a very basic structure of what happens strictly if, you know, husband and wife are in partnership and husband dies, everything should be sold under the Partnership Act 1890. So it's just handy if you've put together a partnership agreement that says, no, no, we can just carry on. In reality, nobody does that, but that's the strict legal position. So a sole trade is somebody on their own. A partnership, for tax purposes, is just a bundle of people on their own, for want of a better description, who've come together to work together not quite like a sheepstock club, but, you know, a similar kind of thing. So it's people working together. They do a set of accounts or, a, or a, a squaring up in the year and then they divide it between them as to who's due what and who pays what. A partnership doesn't pay tax in its own right. So then you go back to being two or three or four individuals and you're taxed individually on your share of the pot, in essence. And then a limited company is, I suppose, the next step up. That's when you join together and formally create a company. And the way I always think of this is it's a separate box. You set up a company and you pay things into that box. So if the company, you know, it, it gets money, it buys. It's always yows I use. It, it yeah. buys yows. They're the company's yows, they're not yours. You own the company, but the company owns the yows. And so you need to think very clearly of things going in and out of that box of the limited company. And every time it goes in or out of the box, there's a potential tax point, whereas a partnership is much more fluid and it's just a a combination of people. You can move things in and out more easily, not with no tax consequence, but it's much less strictly governed. Limited company has to put accounts onto company's house. They do a separate corporation tax return. If you want money out, it's by way of wages. It's by way of a dividend. So it's, it's quite a different structure. The reason it's called a limited company is if it goes bust, people can take the money that's in the company and nothing further. And so your house is not on the line, for example, whereas in a partnership, you're jointly and severally liable. So if I'm in partnership with dad and we owe the Vatman, the Vatman can pursue him or me or both of us. Whereas a limited company be pursued on their own, the people have one step away from a liability perspective. So it's generally more complicated to run and that's the the trade-off for the limited protection.
0: I guess most crofters will be sole traders. They maybe could be in a partnership. What are the advantages then to being a sole trader versus a partnership?
1: I suppose the biggest one, being a sole trader, is you're your own boss. You're not answering to anyone else. A partnership works really well when you're all involved In different mixes because you can be kind of combining your abilities so you might have you know if we had a partnership at home you know dad would be this the sheep man and I would be the accounts woman within the partnership and between us we would get a share of the profits it doesn't have to be the same you don't need to split it down the middle your partnership agreement governs that but failing that if you all agree that's what happens but that's where the partnership agreement is great because you say well we'll divide it as we decide at the time And off you go. So then one year you say, well, I'm employed, so I'm using my £12,000. You're not. We're both, you know, we can split it in a different way that suits both what we're doing on the ground and what works tax wise within reason. There are peculiar rules about partners who aren't actually active and things like that, you know, if it's just a partnership with the name of, you know, Granda, who's 97, who's got nothing in the business, isn't doing anything. There's funny rules on losses and peculiarities around the edges. But in general terms, a partnership allows you to divide up the profits and losses and the responsibilities between you. But you do act as a pair. I mean, Safris are a partnership. So we're a limited liability partnership, which is a slightly hybrid in the middle. But essentially, I'm in business with the guys in Bournemouth. I trust them to be doing the right thing. I don't see what they're doing every day, but I trust them and that's fine because we're all governed by our own partnership agreement. It's no different than Dad and I being in the shed deciding what we're doing. The guys in Safries, we do the same, just there's more of us. It's the same theory.
0: And if you're in the shed sorting sheep with your dad, who has the final say?
1: Oh, Dad, every time.
0: We have lots of crofters that we work with and they're not that registered. Should they be VAT registered? What are the advantages? What are the disadvantages?
1: You can always be VAT registered if you're making VATable supplies. So if you're selling sheep, they are VATable supplies. They're zero rated, so you don't pay VAT on the sale, but it is a zero supply, so you can... Vat register. So you may voluntarily register, even if you don't hit the VAT threshold, which is eighty-five thousand pounds of turnover. So most crofters don't. If you are VAT registered, you can then reclaim VAT on business expenses. Lots of our crofting and particularly farming clients like to be VAT registered because they like to get VAT back. It makes them very happy. You know that includes things like vet bills and fence posts and tractors yeah a bit of fuel though there's always an element for your private use and things like that but yes if you're VAT registered you charge VAT on any sales you make and you reclaim VAT on any purchases for the business that you have made as well and what you then do is you do a VAT return usually every quarter and you say to HMRC, this is the VAT that I've collected on everything that I've sold. This is the VAT that I've paid out on everything for my business that I've spent. This is the difference. And traditionally in farming or crofting, it's and this is what HMRC owe me. Because generally, your outputs, your sales, most of them are zero-rated because it's yows, it's cows, it's barley. And your inputs, whether it's fertilizer or fence posts or whatever, have VAT on them. So you're in a, a net VAT paying position and you get that back. The mechanics of that are that you have to prepare a VAT return every quarter. It has to be sent digitally to HMRC. It's something that puts people off, I think, sometimes because you need to keep digital records and you need to submit that through the computer once a quarter. And that can be quite daunting. It, once you're in the swing of it, there's a lot of very good programs that allow it to happen fairly easily but it can feel like a an onerous task gone are the days when you do it on the back of a bit of paper and you know post it off so what it also means is you are in the regime of doing that every quarter hmrc are aware of what you're doing they you know that should never be a bad thing if you're doing the right thing whatever but some people just don't like it they're like i'd sooner just keep below the radar and not not worry about that if you get a VAT return wrong, which everybody does at some point, you're fine just to correct it in the next one, as long as the VAT itself is not more than—and I always have to check this. I think it's ten thousand pound right at the minute, but you can you can Google it at the time because they move the limits. But you know, if you've missed a hundred pound off it, you just correct it in the next one. It's not a huge drama. If you've you know if you've double counted a tractor, it's a slightly different conversation. But in in small terms, you you just correct things as you go. But if you're doing it digitally, you would always be trying to square it off to your bank anyway. So you know that everything's pretty much there. It's actually a really nice discipline because you get in the habit of keeping your records every quarter. So when it comes to the end of your year for working out what you've done, you've been doing it every 12 weeks anyway. And that's quite a nice discipline. You can then, if you are not exceeding £85,000 of income, you can just say, actually, I'd like to deregister for VAT now. Because it's becoming more of a burden to do it. I'm paying the accountant to do it. I'm not getting the VAT. I'm getting back and paying my accountant. That's daft. And what happens at that point is anything that you've got on hand, tractors, diggers, feed rings, whatever it might be, you account for the value of on the way out of the VAT scheme. And so, you know, there's there's an in and an out. And it's a wee bit like a box like the limited company. You know, The VAT goes in, the VAT goes out, and you square it all off and you collect it. And you pay it over. A lot of people have described themselves as a VAT collection unit for HMRC. That's broadly what you are. You collect it from the sales that you have. You got you pay it from the purchases, and you square off the difference. So you know it's it's a bit of admin. Generally speaking, farmers are VAT registered. Very often, crofters are not because they think, ah, it's not worth the hassle.
0: Does the VAT man mind that if you're a crofter, you're? always reclaiming VAT and you're never paying out VAT. I mean, can you keep going like that forever? Yes,
1: absolutely. Those are the rules. You pay VAT and what you need to pay VAT on, you reclaim VAT and what you've paid. So most farmers, most crofters are in a repayment position all the time. That's what they would expect. When you register for VAT you tell them what you do. So if you were to say to them I'm an accountant and then you're forever reclaiming VAT, they'd be like I doubt that. If you're a farmer or a crofter, that makes perfect sense to HMRC. It used to be in the old days when you did a VAT return and you got the envelope, the prepaid envelope, they had different letters on the outside of them. That was putting them to different boxes so they knew that was the farmers and crofters and they would be a repayment and they always opened them last. So they they banked their cheques. And then they made the repayments, they tell me. I've never tested that, but that's, they tell me, you know, and so they do expect that it's a repayment position and that there's nothing wrong with that. There are other industries that are that too, you know, new build houses are zero rated. So they're, you know, in a repayment position very often as well. So there's nothing wrong with that. That's Those are the rules. It's absolutely fine.
0: If you're a crofter and you've got your croft business and you're mostly selling livestock, so there's no VAT being charged on that, What happens if you have, say, some self-catering pods as well?
1: I knew you were going to ask that. If you as an entity, whether you are a sole trade or a partnership or a limited company, are doing two things as that entity, the VAT counts for both. So if you, Siobhan, have a croft and a pod, then both things you do are in the same VAT registration. And people forget that sometimes and it does create problems because people don't want to put another 20% onto their pod because then it's not competitive with the neighbour who's not VAT registered. And what we would probably want to look at there is, well, is it right that you're a sole trader? Should you be in a partnership? Because a partnership's a separate legal entity for VAT, you could have a partnership croft or a partnership holiday let and a sole trade croft there are very clear rules that you can't just split the business to avoid the vat man but if they're two separate businesses run by separate people if you structure it correctly it should be fine
0: as a crofter i could just run my croft and be vat registered but say myself and my husband could run the pods as a partnership and that way we could reclaim VAT on the croft expenses and not have to charge VAT on the pods because we're in a partnership. That be right?
1: Yes. And the crucial bit there is, and also not reclaim the VAT on the pods because it's not VAT registered. You don't get to do both. I suppose the crucial thing to say here, Siobhan, is, you know, don't go and restructure your business today and say, oh Margie said so because there are nuances and all that, and we were, you know, you should have a good look at what's on the ground but in general terms if you're in partnership doing one thing and you're a sole trader doing something else, they're two separate VAT boxes and you keep them very clean and that's when your partnership agreement becomes important because if somebody passes on and you become a sole trader you might not realise and suddenly you are all in the one VAT registration so you just need to be a bit careful when there's changes like that that you haven't accidentally done something peculiar with the VAT.
0: As a crofter, Well, I'll just talk about my own business. So every year I make a stonking loss and it's just as well that I'm employed because that pays for the cow's feed. So I make a loss every single year. I suppose there are some advantages with making a loss and being employed, but how long could I keep making losses for? Well, you can make losses for as long as you like.
1: What's not useful is the tax treatment of them after 5 years where you've got your employment and you've made a loss for a year if it is a genuine trading loss the start question is for HMRC was it done with a view to profit is there a chance that you could make profit here i'd love to <laughs> i'd love to and assuming that you know anyone that was doing what you're doing has a sniff of making profit the way you're doing it then it's broadly a commercial business and saying that you should be able to offset losses from a business that's you know going with a view to profit against your employment income by year five for farming HMRC say well you're not making a profit if you've got five years without that and we don't think that you're going to and we think this is a hobby And so you can't sideways use this loss against your employment because you're not doing it with a view to profit, it's a hobby. If they think you never did it with a view to profit, you're not counting the five years, you just don't get the sideways loss from day one. But in reality, if you were trying and just not getting there, year six, you can no longer put sideways. You don't lose that loss. What happens is it goes onto your tax return and it rolls forward for the next year. So if you make a profit in year seven, the loss from year six that you haven't used anywhere else goes against that profit. And then if you start making profits again and then start making losses again, you're slightly resetting that clock. And the one thing to note, a lot of crofters, a lot of farmers use the term dates, they use May and November as their year end rather than the 5th of April. The five years runs April to April. So if you don't have an April year, a 5th of April or 31st of March year end, you've got to time apportion it and look. And sometimes that catches people unawares. We are moving to a position where everyone is going to have to account for their profits to the 5th of April regardless by April 24. And so that will become academic because we'll be doing it to the 5th of April anyway. But I have seen people get caught out because year 6 was a profit. But actually when you did it on an April to April basis rather than a November and time apportioned it, it wasn't. So they say, I'm sorry, you can't have the sideways loss relief those losses are excluding capital allowance. so if you bought a tractor and that created a big loss then that's slightly different because that's a capital allowance and they're saying well that's a one-off we kind of disregard that it's the basic trading that we're looking at
0: one day i really do hope to make a profit but oh my goodness it's quite hard going and you said there things like buying a tractor so what things can you Buy that are going to be tax deductible how does that work the description and probably the simplest way to think
1: about it is are they wholly and exclusively for your business so feed for your cows is clearly wholly and exclusively for your business fertilizer for the fields yes absolutely where you start getting into peculiarities is A proportion of your phone bill, a proportion of things, your motor expenses, where it's a bit of both. And things like that, you can make an apportionment if you're a sole trader or a partnership. You just say, well, I know that 60% of my mileage is going to work. That's not business. So I'll take 40% of the motor costs, for example. Big bits of equipment there are capital allowances available on so tractors, people love to buy a tractor and a pickup, love to buy a pickup cars are horribly tax inefficient so when you're buying a pickup that gets good capital allowances in essence you're writing it off year one potentially for a car that is not the case and a lot of the vehicles that are kicking about you know certain, you know like Land cruisers, discoveries, things like that, which, you know, get bales lobbed in the back and things like that may not qualify as a commercial vehicle for those purposes. So if you're not sure, it's always worth just having a wee look. But generally speaking, if it's wholly and exclusively for your business, you can deduct it. That includes accountant's fees if you're doing that. The one thing to watch is people always say, well, I've put up a shed and it's wholly for the business. It absolutely is probably, um unless you're putting your train set or something in it, but essentially you know if it's a, if it's a building for the cows, then then it's wholly for the business, but because it is a shed, it's not tax efficient, and the reason for that is to get the full allowance, it has to have a function, rather be part of the setting of what where you do what you do, so generally speaking, a building is very inefficient, you do get a really, really small allowance but it's, you know, a few percent rather than a hundred percent. So just be really careful on that. You know, if you buy 50 grand's worth of shed, don't just deduct it from the profits. But if you buy 50 grand's worth of pickup, you're much more likely to be able to. That's something that people forget, I think. So it's important to know that. And interesting, you know, if if you were putting up a tatty shed, people like me would go through and say, well, bricks and mortar, not so good, but all of the things that have a function, like the the cold store element of it the the refrigeration, all these things are different, so you then start picking through the bones of something if you've got a grain dryer in the corner, that kind of stuff. tatty sheds generally are pretty efficient. Grain dryers in themselves are usually quite efficient. A shed to put the cows in is not, but the movable barriers and the sleepers and these things might be so those things get puzzly, but generally speaking, you know the bills for the cows are fine.
0: So things like a new fank or a turnover crate or a very posh fank, those things you could deduct.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, a mobile fank is much easier to explain to the revenue because they see it's got wheels. And so they're like, ah, good, that's mobile. It's not fixed if it, you know, if it's concreted into your shed you're then picking through it, say, well, what's shed and what's funk and what's movable and what's not. So, you know, a, a lovely mobile funk, which is always my ambition, is is the absolute crack for tags, to be honest. So it's good.
0: I just need to uh, persuade the department that it's OK for cags as well and then you're on a winner. And, of course, if you get a grant, bear in mind you haven't spent that money.
1: So you don't get to have your cake and eat it. So, if you haven't actually, you know, if you've spent a thousand pound or something, or like four hundred pound of a grant, cost to you is actually six hundred pound, and that becomes different in a limited company. But that's horrible, so we'll not talk about that today.
0: How small an item do you go to? So, if you buy a new claw hammer, then is that tax deductible?
1: It absolutely is. There are. Um, provisions for kind of repairs and renewals and I would always argue that you probably had a hammer and so it's a replacement of said hammer. For now when you get 100% deduction either way it's entirely academic. So you either put it in as repairs and renewals and you get 100% deduction or you say well it's a new capital item and you get 100% deduction. Strictly speaking HMRC have some guidance that says you know, if it's going to last you for a couple of years it's probably equipment it probably should go on the balance sheet. In reality, then everybody has a screwdriver, a hammer. The small tools like that I would always put through repairs and renewals because there would have been one in the past. The one we always see, because we keep a list of what everybody has as their fixed assets are power washers because they seem just to break all the time. So you have a look and it's like this is your fourth power washer. Do you still have four? It's like, no, we've only got one. And so we'll we'll clear the other ones out. You know, because there is a bit of record keeping behind the, the equipment that you have for tax purposes and you know when they they're not sold and they just die due to misuse you don't need to tell the accountant generally and people forget and they end up with dozens of them
0: what would be the best way to keep your records so if you have records coming to you does it make a difference if they're done on one of the programs that you can purchase or can you do them in excel or can you just do them on pen and paper does it make a difference when it comes to you how it's kept
1: If you're VAT registered, somebody somewhere will have to keep electronic records. That doesn't need to be you. We have some clients that write it out on paper and send it to us and we put it through a program. That's quite an expensive way to do it, to be blunt. A lot of the digital records now are really good. That's only good if you actually have internet connection, if you have all of these things. So... We don't have many clients now that just give us a bag of stuff. It's still entirely feasible. What we would then do is convert it into something electronic and that we don't keep paper records now at all. It's all on a program. But if you're absolutely like, I'm never, ever, ever doing that, someone will do it for you. You know, and it can be done. It's just a more labor intensive way of doing it. And any accountant tends to you know, charge by the hour. So the longer it takes them, the more it costs you that's very often where you involve the next generation where they're like, oh, I could do that in a minute, dad, on my phone. It's like, well, you crack on then and you do that. And that saves me a
0: job. Talking of costs, how much does it cost to get an accountant to prepare your account? Say you're a small croft and you've got 20 sheep and 10 cows and that's all of your sales. What sort of level would you be looking at? And I suppose the same thing for VAT, you know, somebody hasn't got internet or hasn't got a computer, doesn't want to do the VAT, how much do accountants charge for doing VAT returns?
1: That's a really difficult question to answer, actually, because every accountant has a different cost base, every accountant has a different style. There are some excellent bookkeepers that will do that from their front room and do it very efficiently. You then have people like us who have... An office with fifty or sixty folk, the cost base is different. What I would say is there are jolly good accountants at every part of that spectrum of costs. Sometimes I think folk think, "Oh, I, you know, I must pay a lot of money to make it good." That's not the case, and that sounds dreadful. But you know, there are good accountants everywhere. And the most important thing, I think I've said this, I don't know how many times, but if you are using an accountant, it needs to be somebody that you can wander in and speak to. If they make you feel daft. You shouldn't be using them. You should be using somebody else. And that's important. And if it's a case of saving £50 but feeling like a dafty at the end of the year, it's the wrong answer. So there are all sorts of great people all over that are doing really, really good work. And the best accountant will say to you when you've outgrown them by being too small or too big, you know, and that will move over a business life sometimes where you say now I'm the right person, later on I'm not. And that's a really important thing. If you're talking to your accountant, they'll be saying, keep your costs right. That includes themselves. So it's important that you have something that fits with your business that, you know, you're not going to say, well, I only can have it on the 14th of July. And you're like, well, I'm always busy in the 14th of July. So the only day I can have it is so, like, well, then that account is not for you. The same as I'm only going to do it if I'm going to charge you this. And that doesn't your business model that's the wrong answer or I'm going to do it and I'm really cheap but I don't I don't like you I don't want to be in your office that's the wrong answer as well but probably I would guess for a set of accounts the lowest would be you know maybe four or five hundred pound a year up to couple of thousand pound a year, depending on what you're doing, how easy you make it for accountants. The same with tax returns. You'll get some that'll be done for £100. You'll be some that'll be done for £500. VAT returns, probably. So there is a huge, huge variation in there. So don't always take the first answer as well, I would say. And a good accountant, if they think, gosh, this is where we can't go lower, that's the wrong answer for you, should tell you that. And say, I would recommend some." different solution for you.
0: And the programs that you can buy to do your accounts, are they expensive?
1: Not all of them, no. Um there are some that come free with your bank software. The one I see most often, without pinning yourself to any particular bank, RBS have the rapport kind of software. We we do see that it, it works well. Things like Zero are a lot of them are only online now and things like Zero it's a monthly subscription. It starts at five or six pounds a month. You know it's it's cheaper than your netflix so depending on what your subscriptions are you know and the crucial bit with any program is some of them think like real people and some of them think like accountants and you need the ones that think like real people so that when you've made a mistake you understand it's not saying would you like to journal this or shall we contract you're like what did? what what that's not what you're after you you want something that you understand broadly what you're doing and probably that you know someone else is also working at your phone when you say oh dear me this is broken A lot of these online programs, because they're online, your accounting can get into them as well. So we have some where we're like, I've got so far and I'm stuck on this. We can log in and say, ah, yes, I see the problem there and just move it. And then you just get on. An awful lot of them will take a bank feed if you're on Internet banking and literally scoop over your transactions and say, Harbro, the last 10 times you've put that to feed, does it remain feed? Bank charges, I think that's bank charges. And you just say, yes, it is or no, it isn't. And, and so it becomes really efficient. And I think very often we all go, oh, you know, crofters, they'll not be doing any of these things. We're doing all these things all the time. You know, we're working electronic tagging. You know, market reports come in on your phone. You're doing, you know, these things are already happening. So it's it's the next step. And if you've got up-to-date information, it's always a really handy thing and so many of these you can take a photo of the receipt and it reads it and um, you know I still write with a fountain pen so it's all a bit beyond me but but you know a lot of this is really intuitive and so it will make your life easier once you get over the fear of it in a lot of cases.
0: Yeah I must admit I use one of the online programs and it does guess at things so it does make it quite quick to say yes no or to change things slightly and it uploads all the information from the bank every month so that half of it is written for you so that is quite good
1: and the good thing with that is then you also know if you're going way out and you know the bank doesn't match you're like oh we're missing information here you know it's it's quite a nice check throughout the year there is nothing worse for folk than me phoning them and saying a year past november what did you pay 312 pound on a check stab for If you're asking that question two weeks later, you'll remember. If you're asking it 22 months later, you won't. So that is also really useful from a a memory jogging perspective. It's really helpful.
0: Something I've just thought to ask you as well, as you hear about accounts are always asking, you know, what we sold, what we bought, what's staying in the herd as a breeding animal. What's herd basis?
1: Oh, it's my favourite thing.
0: Herd basis is a way of
1: accounting for a production herd usually cattle and sheep, doesn't have to be it can be deer, it can be hens I'm not sure when you would ever have a, a herd of hens, I've never seen it in practice but you know it can be done, it could be ostriches it could be all sorts of things but essentially what you're saying to HMRC is my yows, my cows, my hens, whatever it is, they are my tools of the trade they're what's going to produce what I'm trying to sell and so the lambs are my stock but the herd is, is my asset to produce said stock. And again, I always seem to talk in boxes, but essentially you're freezing that in time and saying, well, these 80 yows or 40 yows, that's them. And I'm going to have 40 yows. And if you continue with 40 yows, we just kind of pretend they're the same 40 yows, even although they can't be the same 40 yows as they were in 1974. But if they are the same kind of quality and the same breed, you know, you wouldn't have 40 Cheviot yows and then. Pretend that they're forty blue domains, you know. But if you had the same, you know, you had forty chiviot yows in nineteen eighty, you have forty chiviot yows in twenty twenty two. They're not suddenly all the ones that won the Highland Show that you bought, you know. They're just good, decent yows. Then you essentially treat them like for like, and they stand in each other's shoes and they are hooves and they just roll on and roll on. And then your cost of them, you know, feeding them throughout the year is a deduction as normal and all these things, but their value gets set in stone. And if you ended up with 50 yows, you'd have your original 40 and then the 10 at the value they come in at at the point they go into that herd box. And in the fullness of time, when, if you retire and you cease, you will sell said yows. And when you sell them, the sale of the 40 yows is tax free. And the reason for that is you've said it's an asset. You've almost moved it into the capital gains tax regime and you don't pay capital gains tax on what we call wasting chattels, which are things that have a, a life of less than 50 years. And although the herd does, because you've been rolling it on, the yows don't. And so that's how they end up exempt. But for for practical purposes, a herd basis election works well because you get tax-free cash at the end, which people love as a, as a concept. It works really badly if you're not going to be in it for the long haul. Cause you might buy them at a hundred pound and sell them three years later when the markets drop to eighty, you don't get that loss as a tax deduction either. So if you're establishing this and intending it to be a long term thing, it's worth looking at. And if you are just in it for a, you know, a try to see. Maybe not. There are really strict rules as to when you opt in. If you're on your own, and then you take someone into the partnership, you've got to reelect. So you just, if there's changes in personnel, you need to be really careful. If you're on the hard basis, people forget. But it's a really tax-efficient way of doing it. And then you just, you know, you sell your lambs, you pay your tax, and that. But but the ewes themselves continue, and the taps too. We tend to track them because they're more obvious. You track them in and out because they should be different quality because you're buying them for, you know, to slightly change the job that you're doing usually.
0: Here's a question for you. What about sheep stock clubs? So lambs are sold from the sheep stock club or cast tops. And then everybody gets a share. So does the sheep stock club pay tax or do the individual people pay tax? How does a sheep stock club work? Well, aside from the
1: governance of sheep stock clubs, which is definitely not my department, in round terms a sheep stock club is is a gathering of lots of other businesses which are sole trades or indeed other partnerships but you have your share you know you're maybe one ninth or however it's it's working most of the ones i've seen they don't do a formal partnership in their own right we just work it through and say this is the profit and you all have a ninth or a 25th or a third or whatever it is. Partnerships never pay tax in their own right anyway so you would always be pulling it into the individual's returns and generally speaking a sheep stock club is not a full partnership we don't tend to return it. As that. You could either way I think HMRC are not particularly concerned as long as the right taxable profit lands in places that they can tax it. You know so if you haven't got a partnership return and you're dividing it by nine, and you're all being taxed on it, or if you have a partnership return, and it divides it by nine, and you're all being taxed on it, you're still being taxed on it. So they're not going to be massively concerned. And because it's less of a a full partnership and more of a, a looser arrangement, we tend to keep it out with a partnership and just, you know, say to everybody, this is your share for your tax return. It's one of the very few things we still do in an Excel spreadsheet and say to folk, those are your numbers. And there's £1.84 of interest from the bank account or, you know, whatever it might be. So that tends to be how we would do it. Could go either way. But at the end of the day, the individual members would be the ones paying the tax because they would get their share.
0: And is it the same then for common grazings? We have common grazings which have EECS income. And so that could be quite a lot or something from a hydro scheme or from turbines. So for a common grazing, who are then either retaining the money for improvements, or they're sharing it out amongst the shareholders. Does that work the same way?
1: I've seen the smile in your eye as you ask that. That's a horrible question. It, broadly, yes. In that you're almost not choosing to be in business in common grazings. You just are all together, and you've got a part share of the whole. Any time I've done it, I've probably just divided it by the number of them in the common and, you know, they all return it as their proportion of the eeks, the proportion of the whatever it might be. I think that's the only way I've ever seen it done. You know, I don't think you would ever do a partnership return for a common grazing because that's just adding a layer of admin that you don't need As we get to the stage of, you know, peatling credits and more wind, which we're hearing about all the time, the numbers get bigger. So somebody somewhere needs to be keeping good records. But very often that's probably the landlord in truth or the owner. And so, you know, it may be that you just get a sheet saying this is your number, in which case you divide it by the number in the common and off you go. But there may be cases coming where you think we actually need more of a record keeping here. And then you're almost in partnership together. The end result is that the owners within that will pay the share that, you know, to pay tax on the share that they're due.
0: We have been doing quite a lot of meetings recently with the Crofting Commission to talk about how you account for the finances and common grazing. So if anyone's interested in that, look out for those meetings. If somebody was starting up in business, what advice would you give them when it comes to their accounts? That's a really good question.
1: I think probably before you start, it's worth a conversation with an accountant to work out what kind of record keeping suits you, because they'll be able to advise on that. You know, one of these programs might just make perfect sense to you. It ties in with your bank anyway, it does all of these things. If you are going to be a sole trader, you do need to tell HMRC. If you do that in a year to 5th April, you should do that by October. It's not a huge drama as long as you've done a tax turn by the end of January, but it's better if you've done it ahead of time because they take a long time to give you a reference number apart from anything else. So the sooner you tell them, the better. And whether or not, you know, you should be looking at things like the hard basis, whether that's wise for you. You should be looking at things like VAT registration, whether you should or shouldn't. So... A conversation before you start is a really good thing. But if you haven't, the world won't end. Nothing is insurmountable and everything can always be fixed. If you're like, oh, dear, I didn't do any of these things. That's all right. You know, we might need to unravel it a wee bit, but, you know, it'll be fine. It'll be fine. The other bit of advice is not to be scared of it. The tax man's a reasonable man. Not as a man, but, you know, they're reasonable if you're doing your best. If you're trying to pull a fast one, that's a different thing. But if you're doing your best and you add up a column of figures wrong, that's all right. You know, it's it's okay. If you get your VAT return wrong, that's all right. The sooner you confess it and correct it, the better. What you don't do is hide it because then if they realise that you've hidden it, they add another penalty. So if you realise it, you fix it, they go, well, don't do that again. That was a bit careless. And if you hide it, it then becomes careless and deliberate and they start adding more. You should never pay them more than you than you need to. So, you know, that that helps correct that but nothing's interminable
0: thanks very much margie that was fascinating even though it was about tax and thank you for making it simple and i certainly learned loads from that
1: you're very welcome very welcome
0: if you've any topics you'd like covered on this podcast then please do get in touch we'd love to hear from you and please subscribe to your the next episodes and have a look at, at some of our other FAS podcasts as well. There's Thrill of the Hill and Stock Talk, which are certainly of interest to hill farmers and crofters.
1: The Farm Advisory Service Podcast. Audio advice on livestock, crops and soils, environment, rural business and more brought
0: to you in association with the Scottish Government.